This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and via audio at amiplus.ca. So maybe you're enjoying the live broadcast on AMI-tv, looking at my beautiful model-esque face, well-contoured, and a little bit of hair gel in my hair today, or you're preferring the live audio at amiplus.ca. Don't forget, if you want to do that, amiplus.ca, you've got to spell out plus P. L-U-S. It's Friday, which means the weekly news panel gets together. You can't do a panel without panelists. So let's say good morning to Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. Hello, Joita. Hello, Dave. I can't believe you contour. I, uh, well, I have uh, a contour with carbohydrates. And also saying good morning and hello to Michelle McQuig. Good morning, friends. All right, got everybody together for this one. Let's jump right into the never controversial topic of the carbon tax. There's been some political fallout from the federal government's announcement to pause some carbon pricing. Rural Canadians who use some who use home heating oil will be getting a break. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau explains why rural Canadians are receiving the benefit. Because if you live in a rural community, you don't have the same options that people who live in cities do. We get that. So this is more money in your pocket to recognize those realities even as we continue to fight climate change and build a stronger economy. Conservative leader Pierre Polyev is calling on the Liberals to exempt all forms of home heating. The common sense conservatives have put forward a motion in the House of Commons extending the pause on home heating to all Canadians everywhere. B.C. Premier David Eby thinks it's unfair that only certain regions are benefiting. And so if the federal government is going to do this work, they need to do it in an equitable way across Canada. Uh, here in British Columbia, we believe very firmly uh, that part of our uh, climate solution uh, includes recognizing that carbon has a price, but that doesn't mean that we don't recognize the affordability impacts, and that's why we work to support British Columbians. Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe took a bit of a different tact. He says the province will stop collecting the carbon tax if Ottawa does not offer a break for natural gas as well. The federal government may say that's illegal and that you simply cannot choose to collect and pay your taxes. In most cases, I would agree with that. But it's the federal government that has created two classes of taxpayer by providing an exemption for heating oil. To her credit, Alberta Premier Danielle Smith was the first person to mention that the plan was unfair. That was last Friday. Even United Nations Special Envoy on Climate and former Bank of Canada Governor Mark Carney is not super fond of the Liberal government's plan. I would have looked for other ways uh, to provide that support uh, than uh, the route chosen, uh, not least because... What is important is that clarity in terms of the overall plan, the overall direction. Just a bit of perspective here on timeline. This announcement came out late last Thursday. The first clip I played by the Prime Minister was last Thursday. Since all the fallout, I wanted to sort of circle back and give the Prime Minister the last word on this one. So Trudeau stands by his plan. Home heating oil is more expensive 
than other forms of heat. And home heating oil is disproportionately relied upon by lower-income Canadians in rural areas across the country who need more support. That's what we're doing, and that is absolutely something I am going to continue to stand for unequivocally, while Mr. Polyev has no plan to fight climate change and therefore no plan for the economy. So, Michelle, I acknowledge that I threw a lot of clips and perspective in there that played out over the course of five or six days, but I want you to zoom out even further. A few years in, how would you describe how the federal government is handling carbon pricing? I'll give you a spoiler alert on my answer. It's two words, overly complex. Well, and I think that's part of the the many arguments that have surfaced here. Even those who are who are generally for carbon pricing, like Mark Carney, and you played that clip, have expressed dissatisfaction with, with this particular U-turn because that's exactly what it is, and it kind of muddies the waters. It, it makes things more complicated. It was already a complex structure. Uh, the, the Liberals had to take a bit of a gamble by including it in their platforms in 2019 and 2020 or 21, rather. Um, so that was that is a risky move, and now we, we find ourselves in a bit of a maelstrom. And I, I have to add something to all the coverage you just said. Yesterday, the NDP indicated that they would probably back the Conservative bill. So that's a major, major yeah. problem for the Liberals right now uh, because of this confidence and, and supply agreement that's in place. Uh, the Liberals kind of have their feet to the fire in the, at the moment, and I think many people would argue that it's because they went and made an already complex issue even more complicated with this particular backtrack. Joita, a similar question to you. I'll put a little more preamble on this one, though. Sometimes in politics, they say good policy should be able to be written on a postage stamp. And at this point, the federal government's carbon price and exemptions in cap and trade, whether it be at the individual or the corporate level, has become uh, quite the maze of different policies. And even if you listen to that Pierre Polyev clip versus the two Justin Trudeau clips, Polyev got that out in nine seconds. Both of the prime minister's clips were well over 20 seconds. So that's where I land on this overly complex, while acknowledging that climate change and carbon Carbon pricing is a complex structure, but the Prime Minister kind of walked into this on his own by introducing overly complex exemptions. Yes, I think the whole thing from start to finish is very complicated and hard to keep track of. I know I have to keep going back and double checking my notes to make sure I have all my I's dotted and my T's crossed when I talk about this particular issue. And I think what this um, particular exemption does is really send out mixed messages uh, on the part of the federal government as to how serious they actually are about uh, fighting the climate and implementing the carbon tax. So in some respects, it has, when you bring in an exemption to exclude, um, to, ex to exempt certain types of, of fuel and to exempt certain kinds of uh, certain sources of heating, it does open up the door uh, and I'm sure that was not the intention of the Liberal government, uh, to really start to undermine the entire carbon tax policy. Now, with that said, it is, I will concede, a problem that people should not be struggling to heat their homes. Yes, and 100%. Perhaps yeah. And perhaps, perhaps the liberal policy should have been a little better thought out or could have been a bit better thought out where they offer an exemption to all Canadians to be able to heat their home. And that's really where the Conservatives are going with their policy. Uh, you, yeah. Michelle noted that the NDP is backing them on this. I'd be very interested to see what the BQ, the Bloc Québécois, does here because with the three parties, um, you know, siding with one another against the liberal government, there is a chance that the Conservative motion will actually pass, which at minimum would be deeply 
embarrassing for the Liberal government. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Not, yeah. not to mention, you know, Quebec is a province that deeply uses hydroelectricity, so they'd be looking for their own exemptions as well, right? Like, like just across mm -hmm. the board, it stands to reason. And the three of us on this panel over the last 12 months have talked till we're blue in the face about where the sources of inflation are coming from in this country. Groceries, housing, and energy. I would say mm -hmm. of those three, energy is the one that the three of us have probably talked about the least. But Michelle, that's mm -hmm. one that continues to hit people in the pocketbooks because there's a volatility in those prices that really there's no fiscal or monetary policy that's going to change how energy is priced. That, that is a pure market-driven mm -hmm. factor. So again, I, I understand some empathy on where the Liberal government's coming from. They want to try to offer people breaks, but when you start really picking in at granular details and trying to get too narrow in your focus, even people who support the carbon tax are going to feel left out. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think this just goes to show exactly what a tight political spot the Liberals are in because they're caught between rock and a hard place here in terms of fighting climate change on one hand and affordability on the other. Both are hugely on the agenda right now. They're facing a lot of pressure. Uh, the record is being called into question on both these files. And now in, in an effort to uh, maybe alleviate pressure on one, they, they added a whole lot more on the other. Uh, so they, they seem to be in a, in a real bind this way. And now, of course, they're facing also political questions about who this move impacts. Yes, the home heating mm -hmm. exemption applies across Canada, but the ultimate net impact is more concentrated in Atlantic Canada, yes. which is traditionally mm -hmm. a liberal stronghold politically, and where they've seen their numbers slipping because they've been slipping nationally. So mm -hmm. the, to me, all of this just speaks to the, the, the degree of sort of political panic rather than more policy-driven uh, decision-making. Joita, I've ranted and raved about rebates as a policy, uh, as, as not the best way to do anything in terms of stimulating the economy or dealing with cost of living. It's like very short term versus long-term thinking. I do look at the urban-rural divide, and I accept the Prime Minister's position that living in rural Canada can be more expensive to get some of these necessities. Mm -hmm. But I would have preferred, I mean, whether it be uh, in the last year or the last eight years, if maybe that acknowledgement of the struggles that a rural Canadian feels might be met more with investment rather than rebate, if the Prime Minister and the government more broadly are willing to acknowledge that energy costs in rural Canada are higher, then maybe there should have been a greater investment in sustainable energy solutions in rural Canada. Again, I know I'm going outside of, the, of our pay grade on this one, mm. but how do you perceive some of that rural-urban back and forth that's existed as part of this conversation over the last seven days? Well, I mean, the rural-urban divide has existed a lot longer than that, and it pops up time and time again over the course of various issues, but certainly has become something of a lightning rod over the last seven days where it has become um, a bit of a, a push and pull between the needs of of rural Canadians versus those of, 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 of their urban counterparts. And, and, and yes, it's true. I think we can all acknowledge that there are many unanticipated and unexpected and heightened costs associated with living in rural Canada. We've talked about everything from the exorbitant price of transportation right down to the over-the-top price of groceries in, in remote parts of the country. So I think we we can all readily acknowledge, and yes, your point about investments is a good one. Certainly, um, there there should be more of an investment made in rural and uh, and remote parts of the country to try and re regenerate, to sort of revitalize or re-energize their economy. I think that's a really powerful 
single step in the right direction. But in the meantime, because investments also take time to yes. generate revenues, yes. uh, the mm -hmm. rebate option cannot be entirely turfed. And I think one of the things that has to be mentioned about the particular carbon tax exemption that we're talking about is that it is meant to provide a three-year grace period for homeowners to switch over their heating system. So it's not forever. Uh, and it does give you a certain amount of money in your pocket if you are uh, reliant on um, on 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 and on oil as a form of, of of heating your homes. But they're saying you know you take three years and try and, and change things over, and maybe that'll uh, and that's the end goal of the policy. But of course, it has inevitably, and I would argue unsurprisingly, led to all kinds of political horse trading and back and forth, which yeah. really shouldn't have surprised anybody. Michelle, what about you? What do you think about the rural-urban uh, divide? So oftentimes it comes up either before or right after an election. An election, And then, you know, hangs around a little bit, bubbling under the surface. But this week it really came into the forefront. It really did. And it's it kind of surprising it doesn't happen more often because with every single election, that divide becomes more and more stark. So I, I'm actually kind of baffled on that one in that the Liberals don't historically do very well in these rural communities. They've already been bleeding support everywhere else, including in longtime strongholds. So this policy was meant to benefit rural voters, but I don't see it really moving the needle. So again, adding to my kind of political perplexity on how this whole thing has been handled, uh, that's another one for me. But yeah, no, it really, it really does make the the disparity quite clear. And if you look at the numbers associated with the heating costs of those who use, uh, who heat their homes in rural areas and, and for the carbon taxes that rural residents do pay, it is definitely higher. Mm. So in that sense, uh, there's sort of empirical evidence as well to back the electoral one that we see every few years. Michelle, this is going to zoom way out into the abstract, but it's worth exploring at least a smidge, at least for a minute or two, because this has come up on the show a couple of times this week about sometimes the difficulty in truly being green or sustainable as an individual, and sometimes the onus that gets put onto the individual rather than the institutional onus to make greener choices. I would argue there's a risk that even people who care about climate change, even people who support carbon pricing, are eventually just going to feel defeated and check out because of the lengthly nature by which changing our society to going greener is taking as just horrific things happen around us and the world. I know that I'm taking a huge leap here into the abstract, but if you were to offer an opinion how could stories like this and the back and forth like this end up derailing any momentum that actually exists? I don't know if it's if I can conclusively say that it would. Uh, absolutely, some people will get fed up and others is in seeing that will themselves get galvanized and take up the mm -hmm. torch. It seems to happen all the time, right? People do get disenchanted and, and then someone else steps up who's got fresh for the fight. Maybe it's a new generation who hasn't been part of the previous back and forth and is saying, get real people. We need to sort this out. We got some fresh ideas. It, there seems always to be people who are able to, to, to the momentum for these fights seems to keep building. And I really don't see climate change as one that where people are going to give up entirely just because the ramifications are so concrete and so real when they'd only look at this past summer. I think even, you know, when people started breathing smog from Quebec in, in, southwestern Ontario, uh, for a lot of people that has proven to be a wake-up call. So I think political wrangling uh, also might 
be wind in the sails of some people who are angry about this stuff Mm -hmm. and might use that as as momentum for themselves in their fight. Joanna, similar question to you. The conversation that happened earlier this week is about the overly complex nature of local recycling policies and how it changes Mm -hmm. from urban boundary to urban boundary. And the argument that I made there is that if you make it so impossible to recycle at a certain point, everyone's going to throw their stuff in the trash and like throw their hands up in the air. I know that the stakes on something like carbon tax and overall carbon pollution is a little bit higher than simply uh, local recycling (laughs) policies. But Mm -hmm. what what do you make of my assertion that, that sometimes Sometimes when you get a story like this, that even though the carbon tax has largely been supported based on votes of 60 to 60% of Canadians based on the last two federal elections, that you get a story like this that just throws so many like kinks in the gears that people might just throw their hands up in the air and be like, oh, forget it. It's like, this isn't worth it. Yes and no. I I think there will certainly be groups of people who will be disenchanted saying, oh, yeah, you were all for the carbon tax until it actually came down to, you know, people who used a lot of carbon and became politically inconvenient for you to keep supporting the policy. Um, So, yes, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are people who will be disengaged and disenfranchised, but I do think that there's momentum building Uh, around climate activism, especially amongst young people, that is happening on a very grassroots level. And I don't know how much that momentum will will change or shift as a result of high-level political horse trading and back and forth. So I think that there's a lot of energy around fighting climate change, especially in people much younger than us. Uh, you know, people in high school, young university students are really pushing the needle and are showing activism around the climate in ways that are truly remarkable. And there's a, de- a number of environmentalists have also talked about the power of Uh, connecting with the environment as a way to keep yourself going. I mean, I think for uh, the environmental movement has been around for many years now and you get some wins and you get some losses. And I think if you're committed for the long haul, you take the good with the bad. So you're not really going to throw your hands up because of the because of what might be perceived as a political setback. Yeah. The other thing, the other thing... And by I, and by, I by the way, by the way, until Pierre Polyev wins the next election in 2025 and scraps the whole darn thing. <laughs> well, then that's a major setback. We'll cross that bridge in 2025. But the other thing, I and I often reflect on this in light of the, the whole fracas about the straw ban, if you remember that. Oh, yeah. Is I think... Oh, yeah. <laughs> is that I think in some respects, the environmental movement has been forced to grow in as well. And you can't just be a single issue uh, campaign anymore. And so I think there's a little more sophistication built into the analysis where they'll say, OK, this carbon tax exemption does apply to people in rural communities who have affordability, affordability challenges that urban Canadians do not. And as environmentalists, if you want to fight this fight in a sustainable fashion, and by sustainable, I don't mean sustainable for the environment, I mean sustainable to try and keep people in, in the under the umbrella or in the tent, then we have to recognize people's different economic and lived yeah. realities. So I think that the environmental movement is also becoming more sophisticated. And I'm not sure this is the one that's going to undermine um, the efforts around the carbon tax. All right. Uh, that's a nice optimistic moment to, to end this conversation on. So let's put a pin in this one, and I'm sure it will be revisited moving forward uh, between now and 2025 and in 2026. And so long as now with Dave Brown exists, I sense that there will be conversations <laughs> about the carbon tax. But coming up next, British Columbia and Ontario are mandating Holocaust education in high schools. It begs the question, how can history education be improved in Canada I have thoughts, and I know Joita and Michelle do too. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv.
Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.